Welcome to another episode of the Peak Potential Success Show. My name is Fong Chua. I'm an entrepreneur, business strategist, real estate investor, and also a best-selling, best-selling author. And every single day, I help others unlock potentials and guide them to succeed. Today on the show, we have a very, very, very fascinating guest. In fact, I met this person at an event recently, and he absolutely blew me away. Not only was he highly energetic, very, very passionable, and also so much great value. He impacted so many people, but he sh showed up and also did an impromptu song as well. And that was <laughs> absolutely amazing. It sounded uh, uh, very, very good. And maybe, maybe, maybe we'll get him to sing today too. Uh, not, not seed planting there. But anyway, uh, he has over 25 years of experience in a whole wide range of fields uh, from life skills coaching, mentoring uh, as an actor, as a director, uh, educator, and also a singer. He does a lot of charitable work with his uh, the Lost Travelers Club, Desired Child Care Organization, and also as a co-founder and director of the Liminals Project. His life's passion is creating those creative life skills and sharing those to other people. Uh, his advocacy for human Humanitarian and also personal growth and freedom of expression. So please welcome podcast host, international theater director, a universal life, universal life skills trailblazer, and of course, an artistic mystic, Mr. Henry Cameron Allen. Thank you. It's, it's such a pleasure to be here, Fong. Hey, awesome having you. And I'm very, very excited to get to know you and uh, hear more about your stories and your, your, your travels. Uh, so let's start off from there. How, how did you become who you are today? Where did that journey come from? What was it like? Well, I was born in Washington, D.C., and my father was, uh, at the time, he was just entering the, the Foreign Service in the, the U.S. government, and they had a branch of service called the USIA, the U.S. Information Agency, and that was essentially the propaganda wing of the U.S. government back in the 50s and 60s. This is before the internet, before there were even satellites. Um, and, and there was a real, you know, every country sort of had its own, uh, separate culture. It's become a little more, I don't know, combined now. And I think a lot of that work and it's certainly in the way that the world has become Americanized came out of the USIA and my father's work for better and for worse. I think that, uh, it was interesting to grow up the way I did. Uh, we started out in Europe. And, um, and then we were in the USSR for a number of years, and then South America, we were in Brazil for seven years, and then Cuba after that. So we really got around, and um, I, I experienced American culture through a PR lens, which gave me kind of a unique perspective. Not only do most American kids not get to travel and be immersed in world culture the way I was, but also it gave me an interesting perspective on how um, the USA very deliberately took uh, all of the appropriated culture from the immigrant communities uh, that, that came or were brought to uh, what we call North America and then wrap it up in a red, white and blue ribbon and sell it back to the world as American uh, and better than the, what you did, you know. And so I really feel that that foundation in my biography led me to almost an attitude of repairing the damage that my father's work did in the world. I really feel that, that his work and the work of the USIA specifically, and of course he was a cog in the wheel, so I don't fault him directly. But I think that um, it did a great disservice to world 
self-awareness and culture. Um, you know, there's still somewhere back there an impression that American means better or better quality. And it's simply not true. I, I've, I've traveled as an adult. Um, I've been living in Europe for the past four years and uh, it felt like coming home. I never felt at home in America. And so right now I'm, I'm based in a very tiny remote village in the Southwest of Spain. <laughs> and the quality of life, the quality of life view in, in this part. And of course, you know, every country has its challenges. Yes. Every culture has its challenges. Um, but I, I feel that uh, the world is in a very interesting place. And all of that work in my foundation to learn about what it means to truly be a global citizen or to feel like one, mm -hmm. Um, has informed who, who I've become as an artist, uh, as a father, as a friend, and it's led me to want to be a helper during these difficult times specifically. I feel that that's truly why I'm here. Wow. Now, for somebody like, uh, like for somebody like yourself who grew up in that world where you're just traveling all the time, um, do you find that as something that you hated at the time? And then, but now in retrospect, it's like, you know what? That paved the foundation to who I am today. It actually gave me a lot of different perspectives of life and different cultures and whatnot. But I can only imagine that as a child, that was very difficult at that time. You know, it wasn't, it was my refuge. It was my solace. It was, you know, I always, as a creative person, even from childhood, I had a sense of wonder about the world and different landscapes and textures and flavors. I was always the first kid at the table to try something new, uh, a new cuisine, you know, that kind of a thing. And, and I was also fearless. Mm -hmm. um, so I think the world perhaps is a little more anxiety producing now than it was when I was a youth. Mm -hmm. um, but no, I loved it. Um, I loved the, the, not only the differences, but being aware of the of the similarities amongst human beings yeah. all over the world. There is a common ground that we share. Mm -hmm. And I've been aware of it from a very young age. So it's where I feel most at home out in the world and traveling. So, oh, that's, that's awesome. So you very, very uh, fortunate to be given that type of experience and then also recognizing that that's something you wanted to do and it's truly you at such a young age, because then that really paves the way. Now, you alluded it to before, where you recognize that your life's kind of mission is to correct some of the wrong that was done. Now, when kids grow up, they generally think that, oh, this is the way it is. This is what my parents do. Then that must be the right thing or the right path to follow, and I'll follow in their footsteps. What was that one moment or two or three moments in your life where you go, wait a minute, this is not this does not jive with what I'm seeing. And then you go, I need to change it. And that's becoming your, your, your path. You know, it, it happened. I can tell you the precise moment that shift happened. It was in my adolescence. I was 17 or 18 and my father was driving me to university and it was about three hours from where our home base was in America at the time. And I, my dad and I, and I think a lot of adolescents, you you're, go through this disconnect with your parents where you're trying to become 
yourself with a capital S. And so we weren't particularly close at the time because I was on my way to university. I was trying to be independent and, you know, I was sure that I was right about everything. <laughs> and, um, and I remember sitting in the car thinking to myself, does the career path that one chooses affect who they become as an adult? And I asked my father, um, dad, do you, do you like what you do? And he said, I loathe it. And that really hit me. I, I couldn't imagine that someone would spend their whole lives doing something they hated. Mm -hmm. And I asked him, I said, why do, you, why do you do it if you hate it so much? And he said, well, son, that's the price you pay. When you want your parents to be proud of you and you want to travel the world and have money and raise your family well, you know, there's a price. And, and it explained a lot about my father's character. My father was a wonderful man. We just lost him a year ago uh, to COVID. And, um, and I feel more free to talk about this now and tell this story um, because he was, he was with his family and with his, uh, the people that worked for him, he had a tendency to be a bit tyrannical at times. Mm -hmm. He was very kind, very generous, very philosophical. Um, there was a wonderful quality about him as well, but he did have this dark underbelly and I always wondered why. And this explained a lot that he felt that he had to sell his soul in a way to please everybody else and to have what the world expected of him in his generation of, of what it means to be a success. Yeah. And I said, um, well, what was your dream when you were my age or younger? What did you want to be? And he had forgotten. And what's interesting about that is that he was only in his mid forties when we had this conversation. He was younger than I am now by about a decade. And we drove along in silence for about 20 minutes and then big tears started streaming down his cheeks. I had never seen my father cry in, in my life. Wow. And I said, well, what's the matter? Did I say something wrong? I'm so sorry. He said, no, no, it's okay. I said, what is it? He said, I just remembered, I wanted to be a photojournalist for National Geographic magazine. Wow. And in my mind, I thought, damn, you could have done that. And your parents would have been so proud of you and you would have traveled the world and had money. Everything that was a measure of success for him, mm -hmm. he could have achieved had he followed that dream and followed that passion and that impulse that would have brought him joy in his life. And I knew in that moment that that is not ever a conversation I wanted to have with my children. Right. And I think that's my greatest achievement as a parent is that my son, I had only one child, sadly, he passed away from brain cancer when he was 13. But in his entire lifetime of 13 years, I never had that conversation. He witnessed me living out of my passion, doing what I felt called to do. And what is a calling? It's that thing that calls to you and calls from you in the world that when that deep joy in your soul meets a great need in the world, that's your purpose. That's what you're supposed to be doing. I think it's as simple as that. And so um, 
So that really has, has uh, informed that moment with my father has informed my whole career. So you had that conversation on your way to university. Did yeah. that change what you were thinking about heading to university? Like I'm assuming yeah. that you you signed up for something already, and all yes. you had this <laughs> this whole conversation. You go, wait a minute, maybe I need to swap some things around. But uh, what kind of career path were you looking at uh, before and then after that conversation? You know, I've always been a creative person, and I was headed to learn theater. I was going to be a theater artist. Mm -hmm. That's where I felt compelled to go. Uh, I went to a liberal arts college, university, and uh, you know, so I had to take all the regular courses, but I was able to major in theater arts. Um, and uh, it was interesting because I never really saw myself as an academic. I was more of an experiential learner mm -hmm. and I really struggled in school. Um, I never passed a mathematics exam in my life. But then I, I arrived at university and they said, well, you have to take, you know, these credits in mathematics. And they said, looking at your transcript, you, you suck at math, don't you? <laughs> so we have a hunch that you have, you have a condition called dyscalculia, which is kind of a, uh, a numeric dyslexia, if you will. And so they tested me and, and that's in fact what it was. Um, and they said, we have a course for people like you and it's called Introduction to Logic. And it was essentially a math course without numbers. Oh, really? Wow. Mathematics is all about the logical progression, right? And, and I had no issue with logic. It was numbers. That was my stumbling block. So, um, so that in that sense, university provided tools for me in my life to be able to navigate the world that was not prepared to uh, rise up to my unique qualities. Mm -hmm. I don't, I hesitate to call them challenges because I believe that with every challenge comes an opportunity. And so many of life's challenges, even the passing of my son have provided gifts and opportunities that I would not have had, had I not had met those challenges. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, that, that was something I wanted to to ask about. Like for somebody who's gone through such hardship, uh, the loss of your, your father, the loss of your son, uh, but you still have this ability to create. You have this ability to look in the positive and then still help other people. And you talked about instead of seeing them as challenges, you're seeing them as qualities and uh, stepping stones. How does one get that mindset to not dwell on on the negatives and the hardships and adversity and focus on expanding and helping and impacting other people. Are you familiar much with Greek history and the story of uh, the Oracle of Delphi? Uh, it, the only the, the word king? I recognize there is Oracle. Oracle, okay, <laughs> well, really. an Oracle is, is, is a person who predicts yeah. things and offers wisdom. And there was a, a woman called the Pythia who sat in this cave in the temple of, the, of Apollo, the god Apollo, and people would come from other lands even for her wisdom. And it was as if the God was speaking through her. And above the cave was etched into the stone, the words, know thyself. And I think that because of where I landed by fate 
in the hierarchy of my family, I'm the middle child of three. Mm -hmm. And so I was, if I wasn't scapegoated, <laughs> I was ignored and I much preferred being ignored. And so um, during those times when I was left to my own devices, those are the times that I went into libraries and studied the things that I felt compelled to study and, and had questions about. And I remember being 10, 11 years old in the middle of the capital city of Brazil, hopping a, a local train or, or a bus and just taking the bus to wherever I wanted to go to a museum or, you know, to the middle of town or whatever. I had no fear. I had no issues. I had no, you know, fear of being abducted or anything like that. My family didn't know where I was. And then I showed up for supper, you know, <laughs> I had had my adventure that day. And that I attribute to my mother. Uh, when we lived in Vienna, Austria, there was that we lived in a little wine village right on the outskirts of town. And there was a, a trolley, a train that stopped right in front of our villa. And I was only seven years old at that time, mm -hmm. six or seven. And she would give me a shilling and put me on the trolley. And it would take me all the, I wasn't allowed to get off until it dropped me off back in front of my door because it would go all around the town and then come back to our front door. And that gave me a sense of independence, a sense of curiosity about the world, the wider world than the little bubble that I was in. So again, there are those moments, those pivotal moments that guide you in a particular way. I think we are living in a very fearsome world right now for many people and anxiety producing, especially for young people. And so, you know, there are skills and this is brings us to, to the life skills conversation. There are skills out there that we all learn. Uh, there are 8 billion of us now on the planet and we all learn the same essential, basic, universal life skills. Things like emotional literacy, things like financial literacy, things like sexual literacy, communication skills, grieving, nutrition, hygiene, right? These are things that no matter what culture you're in, no matter where, what corner of the world you live in, those are things that every human being learns. It's not a question of whether we learn them. It's a question of how well do we learn them and from whom and how equipped were our teachers, whether they're our parents, grandparents, school teachers, whatever. And so I feel like what I can be for people who are looking for it, because you can lead a horse to water, right? You can't make them drink. Yeah. Um, they have to be looking for progression. They have to be looking to become more proficient in any number of skills. And so what I can do is be a bridge, like the bridge right behind you in your picture. Uh, I can be a bridge to getting people to meet those masters in the skill that they are wanting to amplify, mm -hmm. right? We already have all the skills. We've always been learning them, but how well? And so just like if we wanted to learn how to cook a certain cuisine or learn a sport or learn a language, we go and find a master to teach us those skills, right? We don't talk about finding masters in a particular life skill. Right. And nobody, and I mean nobody, is a master in all of them. And then we're in a perpetual classroom. We're always striving toward proficiency mm -hmm. in, in all the skills. 
But there are people who have mastered certain skills to the degree that they have, and they are the basis of my podcast. Those are the people I'm finding who have mastered a skill or other. And we talk about that on the level, just as two friends having a cup of coffee, very organic flow mm -hmm. conversation. So, so what I can be is somebody on the journey, a signpost on the journey for lost travelers to say, mm -hmm. hey, you know, you want to learn about this, go talk to this person. Or I have some of those skills that I can help you with myself. Let me help you with those. Or go and talk to Fong because he's a master at that. So that's that's kind of how I help. That's uh, that's an exciting position to be in. I'm very I'm very I feel very privileged to be in that position. Nice, absolutely. I'm like when you talk about that story about going onto the trolley. I'm like talk about a tease. You get you get to sit on that trolley and go around and around, not get off. That must have been hard. <laughs> it so was, and it was. So you learned was, about willpower. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did. But see, that's a life skill, isn't it? I mean, yeah. I learned by doing. And somehow my mother, who is, incidentally, is 78 years old and just started a new career. Oh, wow. She just got back from Istanbul. I mean, she's amazing. She's also a world traveler. She's also got that sort of gypsy spirit that that makes her wonder about other places and and facilitates uh healing and growth in in other people so i know i get that from my mom <laughs> now you talked about having no fear and you said that from a very very early age you had no yep. fear. why do you think that's the case like how how does somebody develop no fear or develop because <laughs> you know, confidence? confidence and no fear is kind of the same right yes so how do you develop yeah. the confidence so you could have no fear well, I'll tell you how it was for me. Again, you know, the tools that I've developed in my kit, those have worked for me. Mm -hmm. But people can't use my tools the way I use them because they're not me. They have to somehow adapt them to their own purpose and, and synthesize them with the this, with this tools they already have in yeah. their kit. That's, that's fun for me. That's play, <laughs> right? Lay your whole toolkit out and just pick and choose and morph and connect them and it's like Legos. Um, when I was um, when I was in second grade, I think I was eight years old, my teacher gave us a homework assignment to write a paragraph on what is your greatest fear. Again, this is another moment I can identify, pivotal moment that affected the rest of my life when it comes to fear. I'm very lucky that I have this sense memory that I can go back and I think it's my theater training that gave me that. Um, so I remember sitting with a blank piece of paper in front of my face and on the desk. And what I was thinking was, why would anyone ask a child to focus on what they're afraid of? The child is afraid of something. Why would you want them to think about that and write about it and dwell on it? And I wasn't a fearful child. Obviously, if I was taking the trolley alone around the city, I, I wasn't afraid of being snatched up or I was there was no monster under my bed. I wasn't uh -huh. afraid of spiders or skunks or snakes or dogs, whatever. So I really had to think because I had to do the assignment. And I, I don't know, call it a premonition, but the only thing that I could think of was outliving my children, that that was my only fear at eight years old was outliving my children. Wow. My father kept that essay 
and sent to, to me in a packet of, of old school papers. And I found this after my son had passed. And there's a reason I think I found it after he passed because that moment gave me permission to be fearless. The one fear that I carried since eight years old and maybe before had been resolved. Wow. I met that fear and I came through it. I survived it. So that is my measuring stick. And when I'm working with a client with my uh, guy wire counseling is what I call it. Because like the bridge behind you, you see all those wires? Those are the guy wires that allow the structure to be stable yep. while it's standing on its own. So I feel like that's my role in, in my counseling is to be a guy wire to help provide stability during an unstable time. Yep. And so what I talk to my clients about in terms of, of meeting your fear can be a very profound permission giving moment. Permission is a powerful thing. Mm -hmm. And if I can be authentic in my communication about my journey, then that effortlessly and automatically gives other people permission to try on their terms, mm -hmm. a similar a similar tactic. Wow. Uh, yeah. That is that is an amazing story. And uh, unfortunately, that's uh, that's what happened. But uh, that's a very, very powerful story that you have there. And um, must must have been very tough to to receive that letter that you wrote or that essay that you wrote and kind of relive in that moment again. So it was freeing. Actually, it wasn't difficult. It was it was a freeing moment for me. And it was permission to recognize that I had met my fear and survived it. Right. Yes. So, so, and to be able to tell the story and say, this is an amazing story that can inspire other people to be fearless in the world. Right. No matter what, if you face your fear and you survive it, listen, we all have had stuff yeah. to be fearful of, and we've all had challenges to meet, but every one of us, you and I talking right now, anyone who's listening has a hundred percent survival rate. You're, you're breathing air, you're moving through space and time. You're here to tell the story. And that means that the odds are pretty good that you're gonna get through whatever else is coming your way, yeah. right? If you've met and gotten through everything and you've survived everything life has thrown at you, the odds are in your favor that you're gonna get through the next thing. Mm -hmm. So trust your gut, trust your instinct, trust your power that you have the ability, you have all the skills you need. You just may, may need to ramp them up in certain places, mm -hmm. that's all. Yeah. I think people work too hard. <laughs> but I don't dwell on, the, on the, the, the loss of my son. I think there's a difference between mourning and grief. I think mourning is a temporary state that we all experience during the however long it takes. There's no timeline on mourning or grief. Yeah. Um, and there are going to be triggers. There are going to be birthdays and holidays and milestones that come up that bring up feelings and memories, um, post-traumatic stress moments. Um, which I have been diagnosed with, but I have a service dog to help me mitigate those challenges. Um, you know, we're all going to have those moments, but to come back to the truth that whatever is past is there in the past. And there's no time machine invented yet to take us back 
to uh, to change or alter what happened, mm-hmm. right? Just there's, there's no time machine to project us into the future to know right. what's going to happen later today or tomorrow or a year from now. All we have is the moment that we're in and to meet each moment fresh that has this beautiful, what I call a, a peacock tail of possibilities around it. <laughs> All we have to do is choose. Choose the direction we want to go, the direction that your gut is telling you feels right and go there from point A to point B. And if you've reached the point B and you don't feel happy and you don't feel comfortable, guess what? Magically, that point B turns into a point A surrounded by an infinite peacock tail of possibility and you just choose a different direction in that moment. Wow. It's a simple idea but but very profound in, in its practicality never never heard about it uh kind of described that way uh pretty pretty amazing um you talked about the life skills uh you, yep. uh, you introduced them uh the basic ones that you talked about the financial the nutrition that kind of stuff it's funny that the basic ones aren't really focused on in school so that's my yep. part one of my question is why do you think that the school systems and this is pretty much worldwide not focus on the basic life skills that people need to actually survive and succeed. And the second thing is you talk about also the creative life skills. So what would be categorized as creative life skills? Well, we used to teach these things. If you think about the change that happened in education around the industrial revolution, especially in Europe and North America, Um, which again then permeated the world. There are still parts of the world that have either minimal education or one room schoolhouse with multiple ages learning together, Mm -hmm. which is beautiful. Um, But when the industrial revolution happened and children were taken out of nature, off of farms and put into a school environment to prepare them for factory work, we're still using the same systems now globally of educating children, taking these innately creative, expressive, energetic little beings, making them sit for hours on a hard chair and filling their heads like full of information they're never gonna use. You don't think that's gonna cause problems? It's going to cause big problems. And we're, I think we're seeing a lot of those problems manifest mm-hmm. now in the last 150 years. Um, and that actually ties right into the creative education because we are inherently creative beings. Every religion, every major world religion, every minor world religion says something to the effect of we, humanity, are created in God's image or a reflection of the divine. And what that means, if we all identify what we're talking about as the creative force of the universe, I have a a dear friend who's passed and, and he used to say, if you look in the mirror and you're not looking into the eyes of God, you're praying to the wrong God because you're, you're not seeing yourself reflected, you're seeing yourself separate from the divine, separate from the creative force of this universe. 
And we're made of all the same things that stars and planets and comets and nebula and everything in the cosmos is made of the same material. And somehow humanity has developed this sense, right? We have more than five senses. Mm. We also have a sense of beauty. We have a sense of fear. We have a sense of wonder. We have a sense of danger. Right? We have many, many more senses. Those are not taught in school. Right. Why? Because that makes us dangerous to the establishment. And to, to be free of all of those things that have been imposed on children, shackles that have been imposed on children from governments to institutions, even to religion. Um, when we are awake to the, the fact that those shackles are illusory, they're illusions, they're not real. Mm -hmm. What's real is you. <laughs> What's real is your instinct, your gut instinct. And, and so I think that it is a very deliberate act to prevent children from their childhood from experiencing fully the wonder and connection to nature. We take them out of nature and put them in the classroom. There are schools that do better at it. Uh, for years, I worked in, in Waldorf schools, Steiner, Rudolf Steiner schools. Mm -hmm. And they really are the closest that I have seen as an educator that respects the journey of childhood, that does not push and rush and box. They didn't even meet reading as a formalized lesson until the second grade. Because not every child is ready to read by second grade, but if you prepare them in their foundation years for reading, by the time they meet it, when everyone's ready or likely ready, they just, they're out the gate and they become voracious readers, right? But you have to prepare the, the soil. It's like planting a garden. You can't just throw a seed down on the ground and expect it to bear fruit, right? You have to prepare the soil, make sure the nutrition is there and the situation, the, the, the environment is conducive to growth. We don't do that. We force the growth of these little, beautiful little seeds, these little plants, and we end up with weaker plants. My grandmother used to say, raising children is like building a house. It's all about the foundation. If you start with a weak foundation, which globally we are, mm -hmm. you're dooming the house to collapse in on itself at some point. You need a strong foundation. If you have a strong foundation, the house can burn to the ground and you can build it up again, right? So if we invested more in teaching holistic, creative, affirming education to children in their foundation years from the beginning, I think we'd be in a much better place. And, and that's another part of the work that I do in, as an educator, as a consultant, mm -hmm. um, even in the charitable work that I do with children. Yeah. Um, no, for, for, for those who are already past their childhood, <laughs> they want to rectify being able to reclaim some of those skill sets that that's been missing throughout their education. Uh, what would you recommend they do? And for them as parents, what would you recommend the parents do for the kids who are still in that state of exploring? Great question. 
we are always in a state of childhood. We are always in the kindergarten classroom, no matter how old we are. And to first recognize that each one of us has an inner child that is still confused, still insecure, still cold and scared and alone, right? We get to parent ourselves now. We get to parent that inner child. And whether or not you have a child, if you're an adult, you are in the parenting generation, mm -hmm. right? So you're of the age where you could have children. People choose not to, and that's fine. But if you're at an age where children are still looking up to you for how to be in the world, when you're aware of that, you carry yourself a little differently, especially when you're around children. You become aware of your speech, the quality of your speech, the words you choose, right? Mm -hmm. We need to be doing that with one another. We need to start seeing the inner child in one another and treating one another as if, not, not in a condescending, okay, little child kind of way, but, but to recognize that we are all lost travelers. We are all little children inside. It doesn't matter how successful or powerful you are. It doesn't matter how wealthy or poor you are. Yeah. We all have an inner child. And so to start there with that recognition and to tap into your inner child and play, find a time to play. We get so caught up in the games that we're trying to achieve that we forget to play with ourselves, with one another. We forget to go run and climb a tree. It's never too late to do that. Do it at the level that you can, right? Even if you're in a wheelchair, mm -hmm. right? If you, I, I, I live with disabilities, physical disabilities, and I can't climb trees anymore. But you know, the beauty of being a human being is that you can imagine and you can wheel yourself or get yourself out into nature or with help go out into nature and look up into the tree and imagine yourself climbing the tree. I don't know that a dog or a snake can imagine themselves in a situation other than they're in, but human beings can do that. And it's never too late to practice. The imagination is like a muscle, right? We go to the, the gym to work out our physical muscles. Well, we need to go to the imagination gym we need to draw and doodle. It doesn't matter if you're a master artist. It doesn't have to be good. Just put a color on a piece of white paper and see where it leads you, right? Simple, simple things like that. Mm -hmm. And for people who have children in their care, whether they be parents or grandparents or caregivers or adoptive or foster parents, take the time to learn the unique qualities of the child in your care. No child can be forced into a box and survive, right? Every one of us comes equipped with certain skills, certain abilities, certain proclivities, desires, passions, interests. That's, that's an organic process of unfolding like a flower unfolds. And we need to go back to allowing that process organically to unfold in every single unique being, every child. Notice it, respect it, and help the healthy guidance and growth. And if you don't know the skills, if you don't have the skills to help your 
child, if they want to be a football player, if they want to be an accountant, if they want to be a street sweeper or a great artist, if you don't have those skills, go and learn something. Go and find a master to teach you the basics, the basics, so that you can guide your child or, or introduce those masters to your child as they grow and in an age appropriate way. Good, good advice. And I hope people out there are, are thinking about that because if we're not developing new skills, if we're not uh, developing the skills that allow us to really grow, then we're, we're stuck in this, this circle that keeps on going and going and we're not going anywhere. So um, hope every, everybody's keeping that in mind. Um, something else I want to touch on is you're a person who really gives back to the community, to the people, and just does a lot, a lot of great charity work. Um, speak to us more about the, uh, the podcast. Um, I know your, some of your coaching uh, services are then directly going to charity as well, and also yeah. the Liminos uh, project. Well, I, I feel um, this year especially is the first time I've felt like my impulse to be charitable has bled into the whole integral picture of, of my life. I've always done a little something here or there. Um, with my son, we established uh, an organization, a foundation called the Brain Candy Project, and it was a support system for parents who were living in hospitals with their critically or terminally ill children. Very often they had to go far away from home in order to find the best quality care for their children. And they had no community around them. They had nobody to bring them even clean clothes or nail clippers or a hug or wholesome food, right? And so they were very isolated. And so the Brain Candy Project was to break through that isolation. Um, as my journey has progressed post-child loss, it's now been 14 years. And this year in September is the 14th milestone of his passing, which means he has now been there longer than he was here. Yeah. And that's a big deal for me in terms of, of understanding my, my impulse in the world. Um, it's a shift in my journey. It's a corner that I've turned and my life has risen up to it. I haven't had to go looking for it at all. It just manifested. I was in Belgium uh, about three and a half years ago and I took a train. I was in the UK. I took a train to uh, Brussels and then I had to switch trains to go to the coast where I was going to be staying for a few days but they gave me the wrong information. And I ended up on a train in the opposite direction. I ended up to Germany and I got off the train at the end of the line. I said, where's Blankenberg, the village I'm supposed to be in. And they said, no, that's way over on the other side of the country. Why are you, why are you here? I said, well, this is the ticket they gave me. And they said, oh, well, you've got to go back to Brussels, change again and go back to the coast. So I went back to, to Brussels and I, I went to the ticket booth and the woman there, I told her the story and she leaned back in her chair and she said, ah, you are a lost traveler. <laughs> and Fong, I almost fell apart crying because there is no word like widow or orphan to describe a parent who's outlived a child. Mm -hmm. When someone says, do you have a child? 
you have to tell the whole story and it is draining. Yeah. It's I can't just say I'm a blank and let that be enough. So to hear that term lost traveler hit me right here as sort of a way to identify. And I got to my final destination. The next day I took a train 15 minutes away to the, the town of Bruges, which is beautiful. And there was a group of women on this train having a great time and they were eh, from their twenties to maybe early sixties. And so it was a really mixed age group and they were laughing and carrying on. And we got off the train in Bruges and they were asking me about Flat Stanley, my, my assistant's dog, my service dog. And I asked them about them. I said, are you a group of friends on holiday? Are you family? What's what you're having a good time. I, I want to know your story. And they said, no, no, we, uh, we have a, a nonprofit organization called Colegas. I said, oh, so it's tied to your work? I was thinking colleagues, right? They were Dutch, they were from, from Holland. And they said, no, actually, we're all, we're all young widows. We've all lost our partners. And we decided to start a group so that we could travel together amongst people who get it, who understand that kind of a loss. And we call ourselves colegas to throw people off the scent because anytime we wanted to book a hotel or an event or a restaurant and we would tell them about our group, nobody would want to book us because they all thought we'd show up in black and be morose and crying and, you know, and that's not who we are. So we're a travel group to, to and we, we've established as a nonprofit. So I'm walking around Bruges all day inspired by these women thinking, how can I do something like this for parents who have outlived their kids. Mm -hmm. And that term, the lost traveler, came ringing in my head. Because when, when it comes to child loss, people are always saying, oh, that's a club I don't want to belong to. That's a club nobody should belong to. It's unnatural, right? But you know what? Here we are. There are hundreds, thousands of people around the world who have lost their children. This has been the case since the beginning of people. This is nothing new, right? So there should be a club. Thank you very much. So I got back to my hotel. I called my fiscal sponsor for the Brain Candy Project. And I said, hey, what would it take for me to change my mission and change the name of the foundation? They said, just tell us what you want. We'll do it. It won't cost you anything. All the funds that are in the Brain Candy Project account will transfer to the Lost Travelers Club. Bada boom, bada bing. Make a website. Done. So within 24 hours, I had a website. The Lost Travelers Club was born. And since then, I've, I've started a brain candy wing of the Lost Travelers Club mm -hmm. that provides art supplies for children who are still going through their critical or terminal illness as a way for self-expression and creative, uh, creative outlet during their journey. Wow. So that's, that's a big, very close to my heart. And with COVID that sort of put the block on the traveling organization, uh, but it's still in the vision for the Lost Travelers Club. I want to create a retreat area here in Spain to launch from, so to travel from here. So they can come here, we can do workshops and grief recovery and uh, you know the pr whole process of, of child loss and then step out into the world powerfully together again, you know, breaking through the isolation, breaking through the fear uh, and frustration around child loss. So 
The Liminos Project is a theater company that I am a co-founder of that was, uh, it's under the umbrella of a company called Lemniscate Arts. And basically what we do is, ex we're an exploratory experimental theater. Um, we explore the dance across the threshold between the human physical and the human spiritual experience. We are all equally spiritual and physical beings. And so through theater, which is really a mirror that we hold up to our humanity, uh, we explore that dance across both and where they blend and where how they're separate, how they're together. And uh, we just hopefully will leave audiences with more questions than answers. Um, but we've just started a, uh, a, an audio theater series. The, the intention is to be a world traveling, a touring company. But again, because of COVID, we're, we're fairly limited. Um, so we've started an audio theater series called Luminos Luminos Tales for children of all ages um, that takes the stories that are essentially dying in the world, the folk and fairy tales that are dying with the people that carry them mm -hmm. from every culture around the world. Many people, most people in the West have never heard the folk and fairy tales of the East. Right. Right, and people in the East, because of colonization, have mostly heard the European fairy tales that we're all familiar with that Disney has, you know, made and and all of that. So, where are the stories that aren't being told, and how can they inform uh, our development, especially in children uh, today for our time? And so, we're working with contemporary playwrights to adapt these stories from literature or the oral tradition into new audio plays that have sound effects and atmosphere and music. And uh, we're working with professional actors all over the world from every culture. And it's really, really gratifying, really satisfying work during this time where we're limited. So that's the Liminos Project. And then Desire Childcare Organization is a, a grassroots organization that's based in Uganda. Mm -hmm. uh, in Kampala and Mukono. And I only became aware of them because a friend of mine who's an early childhood educator was reached out to by this young man who's exactly the age my son would be now had he lived, which is really kind of interesting. I know my son Cameron's hand is in everything I'm doing. Um, and his name is Bogingo. And his mother nicknamed him Desire because she wants the world to desire whatever he's putting out there no matter what it is. And at 28, he has single-handedly rescued 30 and adopted essentially 32 children from the slums of Kampala, from right from the streets. These are young children, ages two to 14 years old, who were orphaned or who were abandoned or who were impoverished and their families could not care for them. And he is transforming their lives um, and so I, uh, I met him, I reached out to him because my friend said, he needs the kind of mentorship, Henry, that you can provide. I think you'd be really good for him here. You should reach out to him. He's on Facebook. So Bugingo and I started chatting out of the blue after a few months of, of sort of counseling and, and mentoring, he started calling me Papa, which is what my son called me as well. He didn't know that. 
Mm-hmm. So there's something smacks of destiny about this this uh, conversation, and so I I told him I said what's what's different about you about Desire Childcare Organization and the hundreds of other orphan organizations coming out of Africa, many of which are scams. And so we've been exploring that. And what's different about Desire is that Bugingo has amazing skills, not only as a natural father figure, but he's also a farmer. And his vision is to become completely self-sufficient through agriculture and create an independent residential school for these rescued children that are not, they're not an orphanage, they're a family. He's adopted them, they are his children. He has three children of his own and as a single father, and yet he's adopted 32 more. And so I know, can you imagine that? I can't even. (laughs) So, and they're, and they're not wealthy people. He has a small secondhand women's clothing shop in this capital city, which, you know, was enough to pay the rent in the slums on the two rooms that they had. Um, So I said, here's what we're going to do. You need to get yourself, you need to find a way to invest in yourself and get incorporated as, as a legal organization. That was the first step because nobody's going to give you money and send it to your mobile phone. If you don't have a bank account, if you don't have an incorporated organization, they're going to think you're one of the scammers. So within 48 hours, he had it. He had it all done, including a PO box, (laughs) right? So I developed a website for him. It's all his words. He's not a, a fully educated man, school educated. He's life educated, hard knocks. But he, um, he sort of dictated to me the picture and I edited it and put it into language that was more universally you know, uh, acceptable. And, and so um, we've done that and we've gotten the kids now with fundraising globally. We have people in multiple countries who have given a little bit. Everybody gives a little bit and it really adds up fast. Um, We've gotten all the children out of the slum. We've gotten 24 of the 32 children out to the countryside where he has the land that he farms, Mm -hmm. right? So they're breathing fresh air. They're eating wholesome food. We have them all in school, which was a real challenge. The school fees are exorbitant in, in Uganda. We have them all in school. They all have new shoes and they're building a, uh, an annex onto his mother's house, uh, a kind of a boy's dormitory uh, to keep the children safe because we had a temporary tent that we had gotten uh, for some of the kids to stay in while, you know, until we raised the funds to build the annex. And the children were attacked by thugs, four guys on motorcycles, two, two of the boys were abducted and the girls were attacked and attempted rape. And the mother came out as she normally did to check on the children and chased them away. His mother is heroic, this woman. They could have killed her on the spot and the children. They had, they had cans of, of gasoline ready to burn down the tent with the children in it. 
And they managed to recover the boys. They were unharmed. The girls, thank goodness, were unharmed. The mother gave up her bed, her bedroom, so that the, all the kids could be in the house and weren't have to be outside in danger. Mm -hmm. And so now we're raising funds to build the uh, the boys' dormitory annex on her house. Just wow. small room, but it's enough to keep the kids safe. And there are only eight more kids that are in the city that have to finish their school term currently before they can move out to the country. And then Bugingo will move out with those eight kids. All 32 kids will be there. He'll be able to farm full time and be closer to realizing his self-sufficiency vision. And, uh, and then we start a capital campaign to, to build this residential school for these kids. And once they age out, then that'll create the space for more children to be able to come in and benefit from this family. And uh, all little baby steps, but we've made great progress um, in the past few months. So wow. we're very, very proud of that. And I feel like they're my family now too. <laughs> well, congratulations on the, all those uh, small steps. And even no matter how small those are, it's it's still a big impact and a great growth for for that that group and also the the long term effects of what you're doing. So, uh, congratulations on all that. Now, this this time has gone by very very fast. So, um, I'm going to ask you one more formal question, and that is, you're on the world stage. And yeah. you get a couple minutes to kind of give your last message. What's that one message that you want everybody in the world to remember Henry for? That we all need to be kind to one another. There is a lack of kindness in the media. There's a lack of kindness in films being depicted. There's a lot of violence. There's a lot of, of you know, political corruption. Name one government in the world that is not corrupt in one measure or another. Yeah. We are in desperate times. We're in a real pivotal time for humanity. And no matter what culture you are from, no matter what religion you follow or spiritual or philosophical belief, love is at the root of all of it. And it all starts with loving oneself with a capital S and a capital L. And to love yourself first, it's like they say on the airplanes, put the oxygen mask on yourself before you even help a child. That's the gesture. You have to put the oxygen mask on yourself, care enough about yourself. You matter. You are the product of many people loving one another. Standing here today, you would not exist if millions and millions of people had not loved one another. Right. So we are born of love. We are manifestations of love. And I think we need to get back to remembering that. And if we can remember that and treat ourselves with kindness, treat ourselves with value and respect and worth, then we are free to treat one another as reflections of ourselves with the same dignity, the same grace. And uh, I think the world can be a better place. And I don't think it would be, take very long if we all did that. Yes. So. Awesome. Well, awesome words to live by. And uh, hopefully everybody takes that to heart. Uh, before I let you go, I got five quick questions for you. Give me the first sure. thing that comes to mind. Strand on a deserted island, one food to eat for the rest of your life, no consequence. Um, 
I would say I, I'm a carnivore. I, I love I love meat, so uh, I think uh, I think I would I would really enjoy meats and organs and you know, animal foods. <laughs> uh, you you have the opportunity to do a biopic of yourself, right? You get to play yourself, but you need to cast somebody to play your best friend or play another character in your life. Who would you cast? No no consequence, no no limits. Who would you cast? Uh, do they have to be a, an actor now? Or like it could be anybody. Actor? I'd cast my mom. I think my mom would be an amazing actor. Uh, she never really went there uh, in her journey, but I, I think she'd be amazing, not only playing my mom, but also just being, watching her perform would be a, a real gift. Mm -hmm. Now, who would you cast anybody, celebrity-wise, movie star-wise, that you would love to work with? Uh, dead or alive? Either or. Doesn't matter. Um, there is an actor whose name is Paul Muni that you probably never heard of. <laughs> he was a very famous theater actor, started out in the Yiddish theater, Jewish theater in New York. But he, uh, I think he was born in Russia or Ukraine. But he became a movie star back in the 1930s. Oh, wow. And he is one of the unsung masters that we never hear of anymore. And I I would love to, I would have loved to have worked with him as a director, mm -hmm. directing him, but also on the stage. Now, for whatever reason, Mystic Powers, whatever it is, uh, Paul Muni, and also your mom shows up at your door and go, hey, let's get on with this project. Boy, we're hungry. What can you prepare for them for food? Oh, I can I can barbecue them some ribeyes. <laughs> <That'll> be... <laughs> nice. Um, you're on your way on a, this long road trip. Okay. And there's one song that's stuck in the car or whatever vehicle you're taking. And it's playing over and over and over again. What's that one song you don't mind listening to? And feel free to sing it. <laughs> Somewhere over the rainbow. Way up high, there's a land that I heard of once in a lullaby. Awesome. We got you to sing. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, one more question. Uh, but give me a number between one to four, for one to four, yeah. Four. One, two, three, four. So if you were to relate success with origami, how is success like origami? How is success like origami? Well, what I know of the art of origami is that it takes focus, it takes dexterity, it takes um, uh, versatility and vision, and it also is holistic in that every gesture of origami affects your, your physical biological system, your organs, and all the synapses in your brain and your nerve endings and everything else. It's, it's quite complex. So I would say that it's like origami because it's holistic and it affects you know, all of the systems in your body and you can't separate them out and only focus on your intellect. You have to focus on your heart. You have to focus on your health and the workings of your organs and understand that your organ health directly affects your mental health, mental health, mental health, <laughs> very important. <laughs>
Awesome. Thank you very much. So that's how success is like in origami. Um, any last words? What's the best way for people to reach out? What's the best way for people to be involved or uh, be a part of those uh, charity uh, groups that you're with? And uh, yeah. Thank you. Um, I think those that are capable of sharing financially, um, whether it's the Lost Travelers Club, whether it's Desired Child Care Organization, or whether it's Liminos Project, or whether it's something completely different, find a way. Money is energy. Money is a ticket that gets people from point A to point B. And so it feels really good to be part of a, a journey of someone else that may or may not be directly tied to you. So find a way to channel your funds, the funds that you have. Uh, no money is expendable, just like no energy is expendable. So use it, use it to good effect. It does no good just sitting there. There's a great expression my grandmother used to say, she used to quote uh, a playwright Thornton Wilder, that money, you should pardon the expression, is like manure. It should be spread around encouraging young things to grow. So you can find out about the charities I support and why. You can find out about the Luminos Project. You can find out about the life skills work that I do uh, independently through GuyWire uh, and also Parenting 2.0, which is a life skills organization I'm an, a global ambassador for. Uh, you can find it all at henryallen.org. Awesome. Well, thank you very it's much. There. It's all there. And the <laughs> podcast, too. And the Lost Traveler podcast. And if you become a sponsor of the Lost Traveler podcast, 100% of those proceeds go to support the Lost Travelers Club. All of the money that I earn from GuyWire in counseling and life skills mentoring, whatever I do through GuyWire, 100% also goes to charity. So again, you can help yourself and help others at the same time without any extra funds out of your pocket. Well, so, yeah, it's pretty cool. Totally awesome. Uh, so hopefully everybody uh, checks out uh, his website, all his great things, all the things that he does, his podcast, some amazing content there. Um, throughout this hour, I've learned a lot. I heard I got story time from, yeah. from Henry. So it was a, a lot of fun. I, I enjoyed myself a lot. Um, I look forward to speaking to you again because, uh, this, like I said, it flew by very fast. I still have a whole bunch of stuff I could ask you, but we'll, we'll save that for like, next time. Well, well, we'll come back and do a part two sometime. And then I'm going to have you on the Lost Traveler podcast soon. So yep. be looking for that as well. Yep, totally looking forward to it. So thank you once again for your time, your stories, your your nuggets of wisdom for our show here. I can't wait to connect with you again. For everybody else, he is Henry Cameron Allen. My name is Fong Chuan. Until next time, today is the day to lock your peak potential. We'll see you later. Thanks, Fong. <laughs>